Hello! Welcome back. This is the HP Lovecraft Book Club. It's a podcast I'm doing, reading through all of Lovecraft's work, including uh, letters. So that's what we're into now. So um, I just started looking at the third volume of the selected letters of HP Lovecraft, which covers uh, letters from 1929 to 1931. It's actually a fairly uh, productive time for, for Lovecraft. Um, even stories that were published later in his career, like At the Mountains of Madness, were conceived of and written at this time period. And one of his uh, most interesting stories uh, was written right in the period we're going to look at today, and that's The Mound. The Mound is, was, a, was a ghost-written st- story, essentially, uh, for Zelia Bishop, one of the, the revisions. Um, you can go back a few episodes where I talk a little bit more about some of the, the revisions from the late 20s. And I, and I kind of break down the, re- the revisions into different categories, those that he just uh, truly revised, those that he ghost writ- wrote, those he just sort of copy edited and, and worked on a little bit. So um, the, the, the mounds, one he completely wrote, the, the original concept that he built from was not his, but, but he developed it. And it, it very much kind of sits alongside works like at the mountains of madness and shadow to time in interesting ways as we'll get to and when i get back into the stories in a little bit but but right now we're going to jump into the letters so uh the letters i want to look at today cover november 1929 to february 1930 um and as i did in the last episode and as i'll do from here on out for the selected letters is i I, i'm going to break them up and look at these by correspondent not not strictly chronologically because you really see certain, you know, conversations he's having with one person over months and months. And, you know, I think it's best not to break those up. Um, even though we are going to still kind of go through chronologically, um, I'm going to, within that, break it up by these correspondence. Now, in some cases, there are um, a bunch of letters to one person, like he's really intensively writing back and forth, or at least the editors of the selected volumes focused on that conversation in that time period. And there's other people he wrote just one or two letters to. So um, in this period, again, it's essentially February, no, November to February, 1929, 1930. We got seven people he wrote. Uh, I think this is the same cast of characters from the previous episode. So I won't say, no, there's one, one guy's new. Um, so it's a, uh, We got uh, seven letters to James Ferdinand Morton, um, one of his good friends, uh, a nice foil to Lovecraft because he really seems to be challenging Lovecraft on a lot of his ideas about civilization. Morton being an anarchist, an anarchist writer, and and Lovecraft being a a cultural conservative who, as we talked about last time, seems not to fully understand that, that there is some common ground between some of Lovecraft's views about the necessity of society and, and what anarchists were saying at the time. But, you know, he, he kind of had a, a more vulgar view of what anarchists were about. Um, kind of associated them with chaos and disorder. You could read The Street if you want a reminder of that. A lot of, a lot of The Street is dealing with kind of the anarchist, foreign anarchist influence in America. Anyways, uh, we got seven letters to Morton. And here we're dealing mostly with the question of language and civilization. So they get into this uh, pretty long conversation about, about language, um, English standards and things like that. Um, we have one letter to Woodburn Harris. Harris is someone he, he wrote just a handful of letters to, but they're all really massive and they're long. Um, this one's like 30 pages or so. We looked at some of the other Harris letters in the previous, when we looked at the previous volume. So just like those, this is a massive letter. It's just one, though, um, dealing with uh, civilization, which he's always writing about, but uh, democracy and particularly eroticism. And there's actually a lot of interesting conversation Lovecraft's having at this time about erotic standards, Victorian sexuality, marriage. We saw a letter about marriage last time, um, too, which, which I really liked. Um Four letters to Elizabeth Toldridge, who is a poet from Washington, D.C. and one of Lovecraft's friends. Um, 
Not too much interesting in this set of four letters. There's a little bit about science, a little bit about poetry. It's something he often talks about with her. It's poetry. Um, he talks a lot about his own work, though, and especially his writing of the mound and fungi from Yugoth, which is a series of poems, which we'll, we'll get to. I think after these letters, I'll start to I'll go back and look at some poems. And one of the biggest from this period is fungi from Yugoth. I think that was published maybe 1930 or 31 or something. <clears throat> we got four letters to Clark Ashton Smith. And Clark Ashton Smith is someone who often talks about his own career with. Uh, gives a lot of details of what he's publishing and what he's working on. And it's no, no different here. Um, actually, three of these four letters deal with the mound uh, and his work on the mound. And, his and then he talks a little bit about the inspiration uh, for art and geography in one letter. And he also sends his copy of or is a, a draft of fungi from Yugoth to, to Clark Ashton Smith. Then we have one letter to August Derleth, which kind of builds off something he was saying to Clark Ashton Smith around the same time, which is artistic motivation and, and landscapes. And maybe that's the downside of, of breaking this up by correspondence, because sometimes you find what he writes to one person inspires a conversation he has with someone else, but hopefully we can parse that out. Uh, so in this case, it seems he... He wrote this to August Derleth, and then later on was writing to Clark Ashton Smith and, and carries on this, these thoughts about art and geography and, and the artist's relationship to place. Then we have two to Maurice Moe. Maurice Moe is one of his earliest correspondents, uh, reflected in the selected letters, an old friend. Um, talks uh, about erotic standards, so there he seems to be inspired by the letter he wrote to Woodburn Harris. In his in saying a little bit about erotic art and standards of literature and Victorianism and Victorian sexuality, and he also talks and he mentions this to a few other people too. Uh, the death of his of a friend from their gang, their 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 old uh, circle of comrades. Uh, Lovecraft had different kind of circles. There's the early amateur journalist correspondence he had. That's Maurice most part of that, and then there's like the New York gang, which Morton comes from. Um, but uh, one of his friends that. McNeil dies, called Mac in the letters, and, and talks about, you know, very, very kind letters about the memory of, 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 of McNeil. But this also gets him to think a little bit about New York, because that's where McNeil was. And so he's reminded of, of New York, which gets a little bit repetitive. I don't know how often we need to hear Lovecraft complain about New York, but he does it quite a lot. Uh, and then we got one letter, finally, to Zelia Brown. Uh, Reed Bishop, uh, which is also about McNeil's death, and, and this is one is where he really uses this death as a as a platform to then spout off about New York a little bit. So those are the the twenty letters I want to to look at this time. So um, I guess we can start with uh, James Ferdinand Morton's uh, the letters to Morton. Now, as you might know, one of the things that annoys me about Lovecraft is his Anglophilia, and in this letter he kind of does this again. It's it's not so much him his fondness for, for for England, like you know, like a lot of people in America have had that. I mean, Hamilton, for instance, had this um, Anglophilia, of course, and I guess that's why he's my least favorite of the founders. <laughs> uh, again, I'm I'm kind of more Jeffersonian at heart. But we get this here, but it's his vulgar nature of his Anglophilia, how he'll write like God save the king and, and kind of fawn over England and English traditions. Um, not even British broadly, it's really English. And, and, you know, his fondness for the 18th century is all fed into that. It's just kind of odious sometimes that he, he does this as a, a, a grown-up American. But, uh, but he does it. I, I, you know, I imagine if he was uh, around now for Halloween, he would have dressed up in like the in culottes or something and, and whatever, some kind of British aristocratic dress. But we get a bit of that here. But, you know, I don't want to jump into too much of what he says. It's just kind of annoying. But um, he talks a little bit about his, you know, some personal notes about writing outdoors. And it's, of course, fall. This is this letter is dated November eighth, so it's fall in New England, and so it's this last time he's going to be able to write out, write indoor outdoors. 
he often complains about the cold weather uh, in his letters. So we can sense he's kind of getting the last taste of autumn um, and enjoying writing outside. And then he talks about how he's hoping to start some new stories. And, and I think here he mentions too how the revisions he's working on are helping springboard ideas for other stories. And it, it's hard not to see how like the mound doesn't directly influence at the Mountains of Madness. And there's evidence of that directly in, in the letter we'll see later on. So this letter is a little bit simple. There's not too much profound going on here. But um, but yeah. Uh, he wrote again to Morton on December 6th, 1929. Um, which again, nothing too exciting here. He talks about selling some poems. He talks about his... he, he He's trying to sell Clark Ashton Smith, which is again something he does a lot. He, he never meets Clark Ashton Smith as far as I know, but he was really a big fan of his artistic work and his writing and and he's always gushing over Clark Ashton Smith in his, not only his letters to Smith, but in letters to others where he's saying, you got to check out this guy. And so he does that. But a week later, on December 12th, he gets into more interesting topics, I guess. And this is really about the decline of English. Um, so this is kind of the main theme, uh, I think, of the letters in this winter of, of 2930 to Morton is he's really meditating on civilization through language so he's kind of lamenting the decline of english and specially reflected in kind of modernized spellings and accents and, and he kind of gets this idea in his head that radicals are trying to shape language and therefore undermine civilizations underline his civilization to be specific so he's, he's he, he argues here why he's or he talks about why he's a spelling traditionalist and we see this actually in one of his works like color out of space um, where he uses, uh, you know, the U in color, uses the U in labor. He, he often uses, he doesn't use those simplified Americans' spellings, right? Um, he sees that as kind of a bastardization of English, and somehow the, he really does see civilization tied to, to uh, the language and the culture. And so to undermine that, to simplify it, to change it, to allow accents to bastardize the language, all these things, he seems as kind of putting an artificiality on the language and, and undermining its, its cultural foundations. So I don't know how I feel about that. You know, as much as Lovecraft seems to be interested in race, he talks a lot more about culture and civilizations in broad strokes. I, I mentioned this in the last episode, too. I, you know, it's... He does talk about race, certainly, and it's worth pointing out, but he sees race and civilization and culture as kind of fused together in, in ways. He doesn't really separate them. And usually when he's talking about like the decline of, so he's talking about the decline of civilizations and cultures, not, not really the decline of a race in a sense, because he doesn't even see like the Caucasian white race as a singular entity. He sees it as made up of many different uh, of cultures, often defined by their language, the Teutonics, the Germanics, and the Latins, and the Slavs, and all that. Um, and this goes way back. We were talking about this way back in some of the first letters, uh, back during World War when you, during World War One, for instance. Uh, now, interestingly, he also mentioned Esperanto here, and he kind of jokes about it. He doesn't seem to be a fan of it, because it is a totally artificial created language. And for, in that sense, it can't really be the foundation of a culture in any significant sense which uh, maybe was the idea of Esperanto, right? Because Esperanto was an attempt to create a, a you know, universal language, and it was popular among the socialists. So you get the sense that maybe he's kind of tweaking the nose of Morton a little bit in his politics by, by making fun of Esperanto as, as kind of the most extreme example of a, of a bastardized language. Um, then we got, just again, less than a week later, he writes again on... December 18th. Now, here he is the first mention in the letters, I think, of the death of McNeil, this member of the gang. And so a lot of this is reminiscence about um, about McNeil. But then he, as he does also with the Zelia Bishop letters, he he pivots to talking about uh, New York City as, as, as kind of a horror, which he's done before. But this is just so um, kind of good. I, I want to uh, share it with you. Now, by this time, he's already written his New York horror stories, right? Cold Air, He, Poor at Red Hook. So he's already kind of done this, but he... Um, he's sort of playing around here, I think. 
And it all is, is framed in these reminiscences about McNeil. He says, he, says uh, he wrote, And I recall how he showed Sonny and me Hell's Kitchen, the first time either the child or I ever saw it. Chasms of Hogarthian nightmare and odorous abomination, Baudelarian Satanism and cosmic terror, twisted fantastic Nordic faces, leering and grimacing besides night-lapping beacon fires set to signal unholy planets, death brooding and gibbering in crypts and oozing out of the windows and cracks of unending bulging brick walls, sinister pigeon breeders on filth choked roofs, sending birds of space out into black unknown gulfs with unrepeatable messages to the obscene amorphous serpent gods thereof, 49th Street, 11th Avenue, 47th Street, 10th Avenue, black eyes painted, police in pairs, filth, odors, fantastic faces and bona fide flair, swarming in morbid vitality, 9th Avenue elevated, and through it all the little white-haired guide plodding along with his simple idyllic dreams of sunny Wisconsin farm woods and green beckoning boy adventure worlds and wholesome utopian worlds of fixed values, which Never were and never can be. No, that strange, Duncian, expansive, mysterious vision, Metropolis of 1922. That Metropolis, so unlike any one may find around New York in 1929, wouldn't be much without honest old Mac. And it is a vision Metropolis, out of space, out of time, and without linkage to the mundane, the material, and the perishable. It indeed never need be without him. End quote. So, really nice. It's, it's like... You see the the horror he has of this change in New York, but also this nostalgia for maybe a, an earlier version of New York, and also he tries to, I think, put himself in the the mind of this uh, this this friend McNeil, and how he experienced New York, which is it's all really nice. It's it's a nice little passage, so I urge you to look it up. This is December eighteenth, nineteen twenty nine, to uh, to Morton. So. Uh, What's next? Then we got December 29th. A lot of letters to Morton in November and December 29. Um, this, he goes back to this issue of, of English, complaining about... Uh, yeah, really complaining more about, the, about writing standards and the decline of English. And he sees this directly as a threat to, to civilization. So since this comes up a few times, let me read a bit what he says here. He says, spelling is so wholly a matter of custom taste and ocular appeal that we cannot well adopt other criteria other than that of harmonious naturalness as determined by the group practice of the most cultured and articulate minds in the most cultivated parts of the civilization. I don't let etymology bother me at all. It means nothing to me that color and neighbor have different histories. But it means much more that these forms are the spontaneous and natural ones in constant and uniform use in the most enlightened and mature portions of the culture area. To my mind, a barren vowel does not convey the delicate imaginative overtones of association that a diphthong does in places where a diphthong traditionally belongs. End quote. So I, I guess what he's saying here is it doesn't matter how languages develop, but one, they are the in a certain sense, the reflections of the of the cultured elite of a of a of a civilization, right? And they're kind of the holders of that. And then you have underneath that the bastardization of language and everyday speech, the vulgarization of it, right? This is again a very very cultural conservative argument about about language, right? He would have been one of the first to complain about like African American vernacular English, what they used to call ebonics, right? As a, as a challenge to you know, proper, proper English. And I don't think many linguists think in these terms anymore. Usually we see language much more fluid now. Uh, linguistic geographers and things see, see languages more fluid and changing and mixed over time. Um, but Lovecraft's a Lovecraft, whatever. It's his views. Um, then we have uh, January 3rd um, to, to Morton. January 3rd letter. Uh, this one, uh, more about language, uh, how languages do change over time. So he acknowledges that they change over time, but they change as a civilization develops and matures. Right. But he says something really interesting here where he's kind of dealing with deep history. And I don't know what, again, I, I really wish I knew what Morton exactly said to egg this on, but kind of says like deep history doesn't really matter to civilization civilizations are sort of rooted in what is known and knowable 
and deep history gets so amorphous. So in a sense, he's not really a primordial nationalist because a lot of primordial nationalists will say, what are the deep, deep, deep roots of, of a culture like back to like, like forever, like even to the, to, the, to the landscape and things. And he doesn't go that far, I get the sense. He, he does see it as something that does change over time. But in that, at the same time, he does see deep gaps between civilizations. Right, which is um, like rooted in language, rooted in traditions and culture, but there's still deep gaps, so it's not bridgeable. So he's he's not being kind of a crazy primordial ethno nationalist as much as a, a sort of believer that civilizations are our foundation of our of our stability, and they do create separate units over time as they develop. Right, what happened in the primordial doesn't isn't of interest to him as much which is why he maybe thinks like he's kind of his, his imagination sort of begins with the roman empire almost or the greeks at best he doesn't go farther back than that really but some ethno primordial nationals would do that right back to the like you know the, some of the germanic nationalists like wagner would do this right go way back to the mythology of of a culture you know even before that language existed the language modern german existed um He's more modernist in this sense. I don't know. I hope I'm getting that right. It's, it seems he's... And then again with Lovecraft, when he's writing these letters, he's not always consistent. He, he does kind of change his tone to different people and, and his ideas develop, change, do change over time a little bit. But this idea that there's deep gaps between civilizations, that never really changes. It's just maybe how he defines it and explains it is different. But what, what's really interesting here is he says that mechanization is, is coming in like a steamroller and it's going to kind of abolish these distinctions between cultures and leave us all sort of atomized in this mechanical machine culture, which he's talked about quite a lot in, in his letters at this time period. Um, he even coins a term here, mechanamerica, which is kind of fascinating. He, I don't know if he coins it, but this is the first I've ever seen this word, mechanamerica as what's going to replace uh, this kind of Anglo-American civilization that he finds himself kind of rooted in and, and, a, and, a, and a part of. Um, and then we got uh, January 14, um, which not much to say about this. It's uh, the he talks about his cold weather and he complains about the cold. But then he kind of sums up language. It seems he I get the sense he wants to put an end to this conversation a little bit. So he just sort of sums up, you know, his ideas on language. Not really adding too much about this, but anyways, we got seven letters here, um, and the selections in the selected letters are all fairly short, so you can kind of just kind of skim through and read it uh, pretty quickly. But it does give a nice uh, window into Lovecraft's views about the relationship between language and civilization. Uh, I think it's it's quite interesting. Um, him being a writer, of course, and someone who, who obviously anyone who reads Lovecraft knows how much he pays attention to language and how much he's. Uh, a fan of, of, of pushing language to its, uh, you know, as far as it can take them. This is use of vocabulary and, and uh, well, he's got that very distinctive tone that anyone who reads Lovecraft, you know, can't, can't help but see and, and be aware of. Uh, should I take on Harris now? No, I think I'll take on Harris at the end. Because um, I think the Harris letter... It's as long as all the other letters in this section combined, more or less. It's it's massive. I'm not going to go line by line through it, but uh, give you just some of the, the key points. But it's a really, really important one. But I'm going to come back to it because these others aren't as meaty, I guess. So let's move on to Elizabeth Tolrich. Four letters by to her. Um, the first of these was written on November 26th. Um, and he talks a little bit about... He's praising a book on Poe that he he read, and, and um, you know he, somewhere in here he talks also how Tolbridge, you know, has this kind of personal ge genealogical connection to Poe, maybe not by blood, but that her father was a big kind of uh, scholar of Poe or something. So he kind of is uh, talking about that, and he sees this is someone I can talk about Poe with. Um, you know, obviously she being a poet would have been quite aware of him, so he, he often is. Is thinking about Poe in these letters to, to Toldridge. 
Um, but he really says something interesting here. This is maybe the most interesting thing he says to Toleridge in this whole um, section of letters is he talks about kind of the modern science. And I always love when Lovecraft takes on modern science because it's such a big part of his whole theory of cosmic history. If you've read that introduction to Call of Cthulhu, you know how much he sees like modern science is reconceiving our conception of the universe and our place in it. And that's kind of freaky and it's scary and it's disorienting and it's uh, it could could very well cause problems in his view. Problems for our our feelings of, of having any continuity or, or, or purpose in life, right? And this is, you know, one response is to kind of lose that bearing. Another response is something banal like religion. Lovecraft sees civilization as a, as a boat that one can ride throughout all this, but he doesn't get into that here. He just talks about, um, you know, this new vi vision, this new model of a universe of, of particles, and ultimately he says, like, science can only get us so far. There's limits to science. And he asks these really interesting questions. It's like, the question now isn't, like, what is? Like, that's the old Newtonian, like, the scientific revolution. It's like, we got the universe, we can observe it, make models, understand it. He says, no, like, the real question now that science is broaching, and maybe it really can't ever get to a clear answer here without undermining its own foundations. And that question is, is anything? Is there really anything there? And this is, I get the sense here he's reflecting on maybe quantum mechanics and some of the new scientific breakthroughs in, in quantum physics, you know, the, that really if the universe is just this kind of soup of particles, right, what is really there at all? Right? It's not even about the scope and the scale of the universe. That's scary enough, and that's fearful enough. The time, the deep time, the the size of it, our, our kind of insignificance in it, but it's even worse than if you see that it's all just like a soup of particles. How do you even define it? And those particles are not really understandable in our, by our physical laws. What is there for us to really, it's like we're, we're, we're screwed both ways, whether we go down or up in our, in our scientific exploration. Either way, we're getting to a very, very unstable place. And he, he frames in this question, is anything? Which I think is kind of, kind of important. Uh, in in kind of defining his views of science. All right, then we have a letter, December 20th, to Toldridge, where he talks about Indian mounds. Of course, he's writing the mound at this time, and he talks a little bit about the writing of the mound, but he also talks about Indian mounds, and he seems really interested in this because they are kind of relics of an old culture, an old civilization, right? So his imagination can say, like, how deep can I go? You know, and that's what the mound sort of does, right? It starts out just a ghost on an Indian mound. That was like the idea Bishop gave him. You know, we want a story about people visiting these mounds and seeing ghosts, right? And Lovecraft just took that and says, no, what's down there is a whole other ancient subterranean civilization, right? Like Viril, 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 Vil, whatever in the, that uh, English novel. Well, was it the coming race, right? Um, what's his name? Bulwer Lighton, right? From, from 1871. So Lovecraft kind of does his own uh, impersonation of that in the mound. Um, but, you know, he's starting from these Indian mounds, which do carry the relics of a civilization, right? But he just kind of goes with it and, and, and finds a much deeper history of the earth, which is really fun. I love the mound. I'm really excited to talk about it. It'll be a few months, I think, before I get to it, but because I got to go through uh, whispers, of, whispers and Darkness. Once I'm done with this stuff in the poetry, I got to do Whispers and Darkness. I think Mountains of Madness. Um, maybe a, another story or two, and then I can get into the revisions, and then we'll start out with the mound. I think. But anyways, that's this letter. Um... <clears throat> Then on Jan in January 1930, he, he writes to her about poetry um, and just in general talks. It's pretty much small talk, but talks a little bit about poetry and then specifically uses this to give her a copy of Fungi from Yugoth, which is his uh, poem cycle, um, which we'll get to. It's, um, it's kind of a horror poem, I guess. Deals with a lot of themes from the Dreamlands and some of the other 
horror stories he's, he's been writing. And then February 11th, another follow-up on, on this uh, gift of fungi from Yugoth. And um, Lovecraft also talks about his views on some early writers, particularly Poe, and they kind of return to discussing Poe. And here's actually where um, he kind of mentions how Toldridge had a... Uh, his, her, her father was really interested in Poe and wrote about Poe, so that there's kind of a... A nice common ground there for their for their talk. So it's not surprising they they hover around the question of poetry, but in the middle we see a nice reflection on on the mound and primordial civilizations, which is something they talked about earlier in 1929, as we saw in the last episode. So that's that. Um, so next we have four letters to Clark Ashton Smith. Um, these are pretty much all about the mound in various ways or about fungi from Yugoth. So we got one December 3rd, which is, um, which he just mentions that he's working on the mound and saying he's the primary author of it. He's praising Clark Ashton Smith's artistic work yet again. Now um, there's a, like a little side personal story in this letter as well, this December 3rd letter where he talks about how there was like a local press account of Call of Cthulhu and there was a mentioning of like a local place names being used because that is set partially like set. I mean, that story is hard to, it's not really set anywhere specifically, it, it, but it kind of starts in Providence, right? The, the main narrator is in Providence. And so, you know, some of the place names get talked about in the local press and someone kind of wrote him a fan letter that was sort of critical of his use of some of the locations. And, and Lovecraft wrote back with this poem called The Messenger. Here, I'll just read what he says here. Um, so the literary editor of the journal, Bertrand H. Hart, stumbled on my Cthulhu in the Hari anthology. I was quite excited because he used to live at 7 Thomas Street, the very house in the ancient Providential Hill Lane where I located the young sculptor Wilcox. That surely was a record-breaking coincidence, or it would have been had not the house in question been a special center for all sorts and conditions of aesthetics. Uh, he praised Cthulhu quite generously in his journal, but swore that in revenge for my saddling a horror on his old quarter, he would confer with the local race and ghouls and send a monstrous visitor to my doorstep at 3 a.m. So this is just a joke. This is just him having fun. It's not really a serious criticism, but kind of a jokey one. And so... Uh, the threat made in last Friday's journal has caused me to send him a very following account of how his nameless messenger was received. Um, and then he writes this poem about the, the arrival of these. So it's, it shows Lovecraft at real, uh, being very, very playful. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I think I'll talk about the messenger maybe in the, when we look at poems. I'll have to write down to do that. What's next? Um, December 19, uh, also to Clark Ashton Smith, he talks about, uh, now here's where there's really clear evidence that the mound helped inspire at the Mounds of Madness. He mentions a little bit more about the writing of the mound, right? And how, you know, he's really able to explore like different geographies here. I think that's one interesting thing about the revisions is it, you know, Lovecraft's, when he wrote under his name, his geography is very New England. It's got that global side, but it's, it's got that very clear Kingsport, Innsmouth, kind of Providence, Salem, um, Arkham kind of geography. Um, but the revisions allowed him to kind of explore other places like the South or the Southwest, as in the case of the, uh, the Mound and the Curse of Yeg. So he's kind of relishing this and having fun with it. Um, but he says... Quote, about that interplanetary idea of mine, it would begin as a dream phenomenon creeping on the victim in the form of recurrent nightmares as a result of his concentration of mind on some dim transgalactic world. Eventually, it would enmesh him totally leaving his body to vegetate in a coma in some madhouse while his mind roamed desolate and unbodied for ever above the half-litten stones of an, un of an eon-dead civilization of alien things on a world that was in decay before the solar system evolved from its primal nebula. End quote. Now, you could read this and say, well, it kind of sounds a bit like Shadow Out of Time, right? Like the guy losing himself and, and traveling different cosmos. But this idea of, the, of this long dead civilization is also not only in the mountain, but it's in the mountains of madness. So 
I kind of see here maybe some of the core ideas that would be in End the Mountains of Madness, which he writes, I think, in 1832 or 31, so not long after this. Um, But I don't know. Maybe it's a whole other story that I never got around to writing, but what did emerge seems shaped by these ideas. So I'm going to stick with that. Um, Then we have uh, January 17th, where he again talks about the mound and the writing of the mound and the some of his ideas in that story but he also gets into this theme of art and geography this is about a month after he wrote that last letter and it's it's got a great i I think the more i think about it the more i think geography really has to be key to understanding um lovecraft's uh, view about um artistic inspiration anyways and he talked, you know, because he's very much admits that he's of a particular geography, and and it's a, it's a man-made geography, right? It's not just uh, it's not the trees and the landscape so much. It's the the architecture, of course, is very key to him. Um, so it's still rooted in a civilization, but it's still very geographically placed. "Quote: These things are," and he's talking here about landscape and architecture. These things are and always have been the most potent stimuli my imagination can possibly encounter. Hence, they usually form the point of departure for my excursions into the outside cosmic gulfs. End quote. Um, and then we got one final letter in this section to Smith, February 2nd, where basically it's a, it's a note where he's sending him fungi from Yugoth. So um, in the Smith letters, I think... If you really want to think about the mound, I think you should maybe look at these letters. Um, if you want to think how the mound maybe led him to think about other geographies and maybe think about at the Mountains of Madness, and, and you know that kind of maybe there's a breakthrough here. Right. Again, I can't really prove it just from these letters, but it's not a it's not a coincidence that these two stories were written so close in time. You know, the mound, and then just a, like a year later, he starts writing at the Mountains of Madness. So they really seem thematically connected. And of course, Shadow of Time as well, um, which was a few years after that. So that's good. Um, now, the one letter we have here to August Derleth is dated January 1930. Um, and this one kind of builds off what he was saying to Clark Ashton Smith in the January 17th letter. I don't know which came first because the Derleth letter doesn't have a, a day. It just has January 1930 on it. Um, but here he talks about landscape as an artistic motivation as well. So maybe it's, he's just kind of recycling these ideas in this letter to Derleth. Uh, then we have Maurice Moe, two letters. Um, now this gets, now one of these, January 18th, I'll just say he talks about McNeil's death. It's just a report on McNeil's death. But, uh, the January 4th letter, a little bit more interesting, um, quite a lot more interesting. Because it's all about eroticism and artistic standards. Um, so he kind of starts here talking about how do we determine artistic standards? How can they be determined, right? What is our foundation for saying a work of art is good or not? And, and this is, of course, um, coming out of maybe some of his anxiety about 19th and 20th century art, which is becoming so diverse, right? It's like it's something I notice, like in when I teach art history, how like the 18th century had three styles: neoclassicism, rococo, and and kind of uh, naturalism, in a way, uh, inspired by the Enlightenment ideas of Rousseau. So you have that, and then in the 19th century, you have like a dozen different genres. You got realists, and you got again neoclassicists are still around. You have uh, you got the developments of photography and documentary photography. You have uh, the pre-Raphaelites, the symbolists, the impressionists, post-impressionists, it's, you know, everything's going much faster. And when you when that happens, what is our, how can we say this work of art is good or bad, right? Right, how do, how, you know, what's our foundation for saying that? What are our artistic standards? Um, but ultimately, this letter talks much more about sex, though. Um, and, and this kind of gets to it. So this Victorian sexuality, which he rejects and thinks is based on false ideas, he kind of wonders what's this relationship to to artistic standards like what's proper uh way to depict eroticism and erotic themes in art i guess that's that's where it sort of comes together um 
And there's no past standards that are any longer clear foundations for for judging things as proper. And this creates the potential for chaos. Um, and he says, like, the part of the problem here is we're in the midst of kind of a falling empire. And because we're in a falling empire, it, we're, we're, we really don't have any foundations to base us off of. He says, for instance, we are the Boethi in, in Claudinini and Simpaci and Casoderia of a dying world. Um, I don't know all these references, but Boethius, of course, is this late Roman philosopher, right? Um, trying to come to terms with the fall of Rome and, you know, documenting a lot of Roman era philosophy. One reason we have a lot of Roman era philosophy is because Boethius did commentaries and glosses on, on them. So anyways, after this, he says that old world still exists for us and will exist in part for our children, but will not exist for our grandchildren. For them will be the real machine age together with the code of ethics produced by its conditions. Thus, as a man of senses, I don't try to project my own personal aesthetic reactions out of their own period into a hypothetical universal time stream. I don't like modernistic geometrical art, imaginistic poetry, erotic emphasis or democratic social political organization. But what the hell of it? End quote. So he's kind of got a bit of fatalism here about this, that things are going to change, right? And I'm an old old fogey, right? It's one reason I think he always calls himself like grandpa. It's not because he's necessarily much older than the people he's writing. He just kind of sees himself as a as an old old fogey, which is kind of endearing in a way. Um, so then he asks the question: Who then is capable of guessing at possible standards of taste in matters erotic? Well, I'd say after careful reflection that the only competent bozo is the cool and personal analyst who is shaken free from the local influence of any particular age or culture or thought stream and has surveyed the whole problem of interacting historic and psychological forces in the most panoramic possible way. Envisioning man as a unit coextensive with the whole reign of his species past and future, end quote. Now, this seems to cut against his feelings about the importance of civilization, because he's saying, well, we need someone who can be a universalist, a globalist uh, about eroticism. Maybe he sees something more deeply biological about eroticism. But obviously, if you just look at art, you see they're very different standards. Victorians didn't want to, you know, show too much sex in their art. That's why mayonnaise, uh, the garden picnic painting is so controversial. It's because, it, you know, the woman is just naked for no reason and her clothes are... You know, like that, was the, that was the whole point, right? Like in a Venus nude she's like coming out of earth or something being born nude that's just who she is and she's a god but this woman had her clothes cast off right so she stripped and that was what was kind of offensive about it to a lot of victorian viewers uh, of course that's french but you know you get the idea um and then you have like art like indian art that always showed like these naked women with big breasts you know in little sculptures uh, even in temples and things so very different standards of of erotic art um so i don't know how you can find kind of a universal psychological thing i don't know if sexuality can be reducible to to something biological or, or something that's right for all humanity i think it's all cultural too so i think he's actually undermining his own philosophy i like i would expect him to say each culture has its own erotic standards right but anyways he then kind of breaks down erotic art and writing into seven components and then dissects each of these. So he says, you got one, impersonal and serious depictions of erotic scenes, relationships, motivations, and consequences in real life. Um, this could be like a romantic art stories. Second, poetical and other aesthetic exaltations of erotic feeling. So you got, I guess the first one is more like the novel, the not the, necessarily the erotic novel, but the romance novel. Then you have a, the, the poetry, which is allows people to explore erotic themes. Third, satirical glimpses of erotic realities underline non-erotic pretenses and exteriors. So various satirical writing or, or uh, what's an example of that? I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, maybe like a, where, where you'd show politicians in kind of compromised positions. Not really because you're trying to make a, a claim about their sexuality just to make fun of them or something, right? Uh, four, artificial depictions or symbols designed to stimulate erotic feeling, yet without a well-proportioned grounding in art, life or art. 
So symbolic eroticism. That's just sort of the concept, the idea is, is hot, but maybe not the image itself is directly. Five, corporal nudity in pictorial and sectatorical art. So that's just uh, straight up nudes, uh, maybe pornography. Six, erotic subject matter operating through the medium of wit and humor. So erotic humor. And then seven, free discussion of philosophical and scientific issues involving sex. So the sexologists. And I, I think it wouldn't be hard to kind of, this is not a bad taxonomy, I think. He kind of covers most of what I can imagine would be there. And then he goes through point by point and gives examples of these types of works. And a lot of these people I'm not actually that familiar with. Um, but if we just take, uh, which does he prefer? Uh, well, let's look at a couple of these points here. So on point six, erotic subject matter operating through the medium of wit and humor. He says, quote, this is the, probably the most generally debatable of all the seven I'm listing. Absolutely. I don't think we can make much of a case against it, but we have more available objections that we have against serious erotic literature, since here only the light overtones of the spirit are involved. Our verdict on a bit of risque wit must always be provincial and tentative, resting wholly on the dominant aesthetic mood of the place or moment. Clearly, there's a bad taste in the overdoing of any subject not necess necessitated by the laws of truth-telling, which may contravene the sensibilities of a large proportion of the possible audience. At present, the dying anti-erotic age is not, in my opinion, quite dead enough to make restoration wit wholly unacceptable to our older generations. And quote. So he actually goes back to talk about like 17th, 18th century. So this is the Restoration Era, which was kind of a sexual revolution. Some people have kind of talked about that. But you had a lot of political writing that would use sexuality satirically to poke fun at the aristocrats or whatever. Uh, think of like Hogarth's Marriage a la Mode uh, series of paintings. Now, the one he seems to have the least problem with, though, he kind of problematizes all of these and historicizes all of these in various ways. It's just a really fascinating letter um, where we see him really reflecting on erotic standards and what is, why are the Victorians wrong, ultimately, is, is because sexuality is so, it's, it's used in very, very, in very complex ways in writing, right? Now, the one he has the least, I guess, problem with he says it's not debatable at all, is scientific, the science of sex. He says that's totally legitimate and, and proper to do in pretty much any time. It's just like studying geology or whatever. Which, again, I don't I think it's more anthropology, really, uh, or, 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 or culture studies or social studies, sciences, um, social history, because I don't think there's a universal sexuality. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but... I clearly Lovecraft seems to think there's something base. I'm just not convinced of it. All right. Those are the more, more letters. The second one, as I said, is just about McNeil's death. And I don't know that much about McNeil or Lovecraft's relationship with him. I think there were some letters maybe to him in some of the earlier volumes, but I forgot them. All right. Then we have Zelia Brown uh, Reed Bishop's uh, letter, just one of them, January 26th. And this is... Again, a, like a third or fourth person he mentioned McNeil's death to. And this also deals with New York um, and allows him to reflect on New York. I can't find it. Ah, here it is. Yeah, he kind of does what he did with the... The letter to Morton, where he really, she, he really uses the death of McNeil to ponder the geography of New York and the horror he feels with it. Um, yeah, he actually he wrote to to Maurice Moe on January eighteenth, and he wrote to Zelia Brown Reed in in twenty in or in January twenty sixth, just a few days later, and they're very similar letters actually both dealing with uh, geography of New York alongside the discussion of McNeil's death. So that's what that is. So this leaves us only um, Woodburn Harris letter, which is a, a monster. And I'm at what, 50 minutes? So yeah, let's, how to, how to approach this letter. Um, where's my notes on it? I took notes. Um, let me just highlight the themes here and then urge you to, to jump into this letter yourself. Because this one, kind of like the Mo letter, deals with sexuality 
in, in kind of interesting ways. Um, now, a lot of this, though, at the same time, is not going to be new to us. We've covered this stuff in like some of the letters to Morton, and actually the previous letter to Harris covered some of these same issues. So one is this, he kind of starts with this decline of the U.S. Anglo-American civilization and the rise of machine culture. Yeah, yeah, we've seen, seen this before a million times. Um, and we get a really nice discourse here about the Greek view of the world and then the Hellenistic age. This is something he does fairly often. I know he likes the Romans in the 18th century more as his views of like the peak of civilization, but he sometimes talks about the Greeks. And what happened to the Greeks? Well, they, they became that cosmopolitan, Hellenistic, Alexandrian age. So he'll use this term like Alexandrian uh, hybridity or something, something like that. Not in this letter so much, but he does talk about the Hellenistic age. And this becomes a metaphor for decline, right? So if you, in his view, declining civilizations tended to uh, that final fall was preceded by a hybridization of culture, right? So the barbarian invasions in Rome, um, I guess the Atlantic world overall for 18th century England. For the Greeks, it was the Hellenistic, the Alexandrian conquests, which brought the Greek world into all these, you know, with this Persia, right? The capital moves to like Babylon, he marries the Persian women and all that stuff, right? Which I think is like the cool thing about Alexander, but for, for Lovecraft, that was a pretty, it's not a good thing. Uh, now, then we get, uh, he actually talks here about the lack. Now he's, he kind of gets to the symptoms of decline, cultural decline. And he defines this as like a lack of moral or intellectual progress in the modern world. Right. And, and I think that's, that's true. I think partially this gets back to the question of standards, though. Without standards, how do you measure progress? It's, it's like almost impossible to measure um, success, like success anymore. Or what's better, right? Think about TV nowadays. And, and I'm going to say Lovecraft might be right here to a degree. If you take something like TV um, and I watch a show and, and I don't like it, right? So what are my options? I you know most people just move on with their life, right? You know, some people will go on YouTube and do a review and say why this sucks, right? But someone else will respond, oh, you're, you're just a neckbeard complaining about TV, which might be true about them, right? But what's the standard to say that's good? Or what's the standard to say a song is good or a, or a movie is good or bad, right? And I think some of like the hostility towards some recent cultural phenomenons is maybe people searching for some kind of foundation to judge, but I don't know if that exists anymore, right? Really, the only judge is the market at this point, right? And in that case, some things that a lot of people criticize, like, um, are successful, right? Like the new Star Wars movies. A lot of people complain about them, but um, they're successful, right, financially. So... Anyways, it's, it's like a problem of criticism, I guess. Right. It's like even now, something like Rotten Tomatoes, right? You have the critics reviews and then the, just the popular people just typing up or down on it. Right. And it, it's hard to know really what to make, you know, how to determine whether something's good or not. I feel this problem. Maybe I'm stupid, um, but I see it. And I, I think Lovecraft sort of predicts it here. Um, but he starts talking straight up. There's no moral or intellectual progress. I think the deeper issue is maybe you can't. And this gets to the question of standards. If we don't have standards to measure whether something is a proper depiction of X, Y, or Z, right? How can you say it's improving or getting worse? He kind of hints here, maybe we need war, which is the almost a quasi-fascist response to all this. Or it's a straight-up fascist response to this, right? Because war is success. You know you win because you, you defeat the enemy, right? And then you know that's better. You're a better general if you beat them. Right. You, you, you defeat the other side, you win the battle, or you conquer the other country. It, it's a foundation that's, that's undeniable. Nature becomes that foundation. That's at least what some of the fascists said, right? All right, all this is really fascinating, but it's all a prelude to a very, very long conversation he has about the problem of eroticism and romantic love in the modern world, which he wrote to Moe in the previous episode I talked about this, a, a letter where he talks about you know, marriage, and 
and he's saying maybe we need to liberalize marriage laws because you know the whole foundation of erotic love is falling apart and breaking down in the modern world and our if we want to save this marriage institution we got to make it give it a little more flex i thought it was a very balanced and fairly nuanced respond to that for a cultural conservative because usually they'll say like we need to strengthen we need to strengthen divorce laws to make people like go to therapy and fix their relationships and lovecraft's who's not that sentimental about marriage okay says no that's not going to work right it's you're just going to break it's, it's just going to become brittle and you're going to fracture marriage but if you liberalize divorce laws maybe there's something that could be salvaged here anyway it's a very very long discussion on the decline of marriage and the problem of, of romantic love in the modern world and he lists i think like 20 things that he thinks are are pro are, are problematics in modern love so here it's like if you add up all lovecraft's commentaries on on love and sex right it's like a whole book so he, you know lovecraft this is maybe someone's got to write an essay about this lovecraft is like you know advice sex and romance advice columnist because he, he seems to have something to say about this topic it's spattered throughout the letters and it's not as prominent in the stories you know at least most people don't see it i don't see it in the stories that much but some people see a little bit more of it but i i have trouble but it's certainly in the letters so he lists here quote um in general the many complex causes of change and erotic standards would seem to include the following and then he has a list a through q so not quite 20 but a lot some of these include economic independence of women democracy substituting an ideal of cheap physical comfort and sensual pleasure for one of aestheticism as applied to life machine aid dulling the sensitive emotional capacity and promoting the need for simpler more primitive and more stupid life incentives the fact that Homo sapiens is a naturally promiscuous rather than monogamous primate. Impossibility of inducing men to live erotically with women over 40, except under compulsion of strong aesthetic and ethical obligations, which will vanish with the economic independence and relinquished chastity of the modern female. Unquote. That's an interesting one because it's hard not to think that's true to a degree, right? Um, I think some of the problems with masculinity in recent years, and I, I noticed China is just trying to crack down on, like trying to improve masculinity. I saw something in the news about that, you know, trying to, you know, too many female teachers, too much video games, too much masturbation, something is, is, is kind of leading Chinese men in the wrong way. That's what the government seems to be saying, right? Maybe they, they see they're going to become like Japanese men or something. Herbivore men, right? And not all Japanese are herbivore men, but... It seems a significant chunk of Japanese young people don't date. Right? But what's the point, right? It's women don't need to marry to be stable and secure in their life anymore. To some degree, it's still true that they have fewer economic opportunities and they're paid less. And there's all sorts of barriers, but not like it used to be. It's not like women's only option was marriage or the convent. Um, so women can choose to delay or not marry. So what you're left with is kind of like the erotic and the romantic relationship. But that fades after 40. So him, it's 40. I guess Lovecraft's kind of looking at 40 by this point. So, Or past 40? I think so. He's, he's, he himself is past 40. So he's, he's kind of thinking about himself. What else do we have here in this list? It's a great list. Increasing medical control of VD and diminishing dangers of promiscuity arising thereof. That sounds familiar. I think weren't there people who like worried that like if we actually can, maybe this is a real issue among younger generations in places like Africa where HIV is more under control than ever. You know, maybe like people can be on medication can be immune suppressed, right? Or maybe this was among gay gay men in America. I heard this talked about, but uh, just less people were using condoms less because of immune suppressive uh, drugs make it very difficult to spread HIV. Or more, more, you know, it's less likely you'll spread HIV if you're immune, not immune suppressed, sorry, virally suppressed. 
if, if you take those drugs and you suppress the virus load, it's it's much more difficult to spread. That's why like breastfeeding isn't isn't a major spread of HIV anymore. But then this like, leads to maybe increased promiscuity and, and, and things like that. So I, I saw somewhere some fear about this. And, and that's what he's talking about anyways. Like if we have penicillin, what's going to stop people from, from sleeping around all the time? Now, if not the threat of VD, what, 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 will, what will there be to stop people from doing that? Here, decline in regard for children as principles of hereditary tradition succumbs to machine barbarism. This one's fun. Unwillingness of the aesthetic erotic male to feel himself debarred from company of young women when he grows older. Present customs of infidelity to aging wife likely to be held clumsy and needless by a generation devoted to candor and directness. Abandonment of the marriage custom likely to be held greatly preferable. And then the last one here. Acceptance of the Freudian doctrine and its implications of the importance of sex. Consequent sense of unfairness at the erotic restrictions and unrealizations of wedlock. So what we have here are like 15, 20 reasons marriage is in big trouble. Uh, then he kind of gives some commentary on it, which tends to hover around the woman problem. So he's, he's, frankly, he's been a little sexist here. He says, women are too powerful. Women are, are, are the, the, the heartbeat of eroticism in a culture. And female desire is really what's driving eroticism. And so women's liberation is 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 the core reason why eroticism and erotic standards are changing right so it's, it sounds a little bit sexist but maybe it's also like feminist in that it's it's implying women are really defining the culture i don't know which it is but it's it's problematic <laughs> what he's saying here i think uh he actually says women are hotter than men at one point um of course, there may be two or three couples in every dozen where the wife is cooler than the husband, in fact, as well as pose. For considerable inequality exists in both directions, but the opposite side. My God, the opposite side. Read, man, read. What a perspective on the whole situation you must have. For Pete's sake, get an intelligible slice of data by seeing what competent specialists have to say from their wide, deep, careful, and accurate observations. Good stuff. And he has a whole section here on female desire. Um, he actually lists five facts about female desire. Stronger than men. It's more solely excited than men. Um, here, he kind of suggests women were more suppressed by Victorian sexuality. I don't even know where to start with this whole, conversation, this whole thing. It's like 20 pages he goes on about sex here. And so I, I think we should rule, you know. Maybe that, hopefully that voluminous podcast will deal with this letter because it's, it's really a wonderful one. All right. He doesn't just talk about sex, though. He finally gets over this conversation about the problem of marriage and erotic love and the rise of women and what that means for marriage and, and sex and, and gets to his core problem that he's investigating all the time, and that is uh, pleasure and civilization and then the rising power of, of what he essentially sees as barbarism or democracy um, and the rise of private interest, the loss of virtue, the loss of, of people engaged in higher intellectuality, engaged more in base private interests. And, and I think sex is, feeds into this a little bit. Um, and this is kind of repetitive. We've seen him talk about this before, the problem of democracy, the problem of like the, the failure of the radicals. He writes, for instance, what is now making democracy not only possible, but sadly inevitable is the decline of the humanistic I element as the growth of the machine age destroys humanism and splits up the life of men into robot mechanicalism and animal simplicity. Humanism and democracy cannot coexist. Democracy means decadence, the triumph of the machine over the individual. Um, but then he gets into his little bit of futurism. Now, in the last episode, we mentioned he, he says kind of futurism is is a dead end because we really can't know what the future is, but he makes as good effort here as good of effort as, as, as he can in defining what the futurism future will be. So I guess that's all I want to say about this letter. Um, again, it could be a whole episode, I guess, but it's not the format I'm doing. That's that other podcast.
So hopefully they'll do this letter or have already done it and, and you can listen to their thoughts about it. But I think this is something to dig into, especially the stuff on sex. And so I have this idea that maybe it's, it's time we really um, uh, put together, edit together Lovecraft's like erotic writings, you know, which are mostly in his letters. But he seems to have a lot to say. If you add it all up, it's like a book length discussion on, on sexuality. Anyways, that's it. That's it for now. Um, so let me know what you think about any of this stuff. I know I talked about a lot of different topics. But what's coming up in the next episode? Next episode will be February through through August, I guess. February to August, 1930. So who are, who are we talking to? Most of the same people, but a few new ones too. Galpin, a little bit on class, some more on sex, dinosaurs. So, looking forward to it. So, I'll be taking notes on that stuff over the next few days, and then I'll I'll, I'll put together my thoughts in, a, in another another episode. So, um, yeah, that's gonna be it for now. So, let me know what you think. Send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail and I will I'll respond, hopefully. I don't check that email as much as I should, but um, I'll get to you at some point, I hope. Um, or leave a comment below or send me a review on iTunes. Any of those ways of reaching me would be, um, I'd be most honored. So uh, that's it for now. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.